Well, we find ourselves now in this series on Christmas and the covenants, the covenants that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, the third of these covenants that we see in the order in which they come. We saw two, uh, two weeks ago the covenant that God makes with Noah after the flood. We saw there there was a covenant of preservation. God promising to, to preserve the earth, uh, to, to keep its seasons moving, to, to allow life to continue more or less as normal so that he eventually would provide a way for us to be preserved perfectly and spiritually, eternally, as we are saved through faith in Jesus. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 15 and the covenant that God God makes with Abraham a covenant of blessing that Abraham would be the father of many nations that he that kings would come from him that he would that God would bless the nations through Abraham and his offspring now this week we, we look, we, our attention uh, is brought to Exodus chapter 19. And now we have here Abraham's people, the people that were promised to come from him, the nation of Israel, as they are being brought together and formed as a people. Now, I'm not sure where your mind immediately goes when you think of Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's uh, like Charlton Heston and that uh, 20th century movie uh, called The Ten Commandments, which is really more, it's about more than The Ten Commandments. It's really uh, a movie about Exodus from chapter 1 all the way up uh, through chapter 24, or actually 32 or 34 or so. This morning specifically, we're going to look beginning at Exodus 19, but then moving to a couple of other places. At the covenant, the third of the formal covenants that God makes in the Old Testament, uh, here at the Mount of Sinai, the mountain where Israel gathers to receive the Ten Commandments. Now this morning, this covenant has often been uh, known or called the Mosaic Covenant, but it's not really a covenant with Moses. The covenant we're looking at today is a covenant between God and his people, Israel. So I would prefer to call it the Sinaitic Covenant, but that's hard to say. So we'll just call it the Sinai Covenant for the sake of syllables this morning. By now, you hopefully have found your way to uh, Exodus chapter 19. Will you stand with me as we read Exodus 19 verses 1 through 8 and look at this covenant? Here, the people of Israel have already been brought out of slavery, and now they're gathered, uh, slavery in Egypt, now they're gathered around Mount Sinai. And this is what we read there. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness, into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came down and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. God had blessing to the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. So as we look at this covenant, we're going to look at three aspects of it. We're going to look at the covenant parties. We're going to look at the content of the covenant. We're going to look at the sign that God gives to the covenant. First, as we look at the covenant parties, that is the people involved in this covenant. Remember, we defined a covenant a couple weeks ago and reviewed that last week. A covenant is a bond in blood, a life and death sort of bond that is sovereignly administered. It is put into place by God. 
by God and, and between somebody else. So the covenant parties of this covenant at Sinai are three. First, we see God, the redeeming covenant maker. God, the redeeming covenant maker. He is the one who has rescued Israel from slavery, right? 19, chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is the one who has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. They haven't done it for themselves. Moses isn't the hero of the story. God is the one who acts on their behalf. It's not just God who rescued them from slavery, but this covenant that we read and and we'll see in further detail, this covenant is God's covenant to give. He's God Almighty. He's King of the universe. He's the creator of all things. He is the one who is sovereign and in charge of everything that goes on. There's not an event in the world or in history that has ever escaped his view. This covenant as King of the universe is God's covenant to give. So we have God, the redeeming covenant maker, but we have also Israel, the rescued covenant people. The second half, the second party of this covenant. They are, as we saw in chapter 19, verse 4, the rescued ones. They're the ones that God has brought out of Israel or out of Egypt. Excuse me. They are the offspring of Abraham that we have been looking forward to since Genesis 15. This is the people that will be known as God's chosen nation. They're the ones that God has rescued, but also this covenant is their covenant to accept. Now, in the last two covenants that we reviewed, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, those two covenants are covenants that that God says he's going to do, irrespective of what Noah or Abraham actually do in response to it. God is going to preserve the world from destruction by flood until he decides that, that that time is done. God is the one who will bless Abraham and bring offspring from him. He doesn't require anything of Abraham. He requires Abraham to keep the sign of the covenant. But God is going to do what he's going to do in Abraham, uh, regardless of, of how Abraham responds to that. His, uh, God's promise to him is already solidified. But here with this covenant at Sinai, God does require something of his people. He requires obedience, obedience to this covenant. He requires them to accept this covenant. Now, last week, as we were looking at the covenant with Abraham, remember we talked about the sacrifice that Abraham prepared before uh, God made the covenant with him. He took those animals, he slaughtered them, he cut them in half, he poured their blood in a trench, and in the night, uh, a, a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot passed through the pieces, passed through the blood of the covenant. God himself, uh, present in that flaming torch and that smoking fire pot, taking upon himself all the responsibility of making this covenant come to pass. Well, in Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8, if you flip over just a couple of pages, after Moses delivers the law, which we'll look at in a moment, delivers the law to the people of Israel, we read this. Exodus uh, chapter 24, verse 7. Then Moses took the book of the covenant, that is the, the, the written word of the Lord, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, that is the blood of the sacrifice, he threw some of it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So now, this covenant is a covenant that the people of Israel must accept. They must make a pledge of obedience to the Lord, to love him, to obey him, to follow his commands as part of his covenant people. So we have God, the redeeming covenant maker, Israel, the rescued covenant people. Third and finally, we have Moses, the mediator. 
Moses and Meteor, this guy who represents God to the people of Israel and Israel, the people of Israel to God. He is the one who goes between. He hears from the Lord and he delivers those words to the people. He takes the requests of the people, even the sins of the people, and prays for God's forgiveness for those things. Right? He presents those things, those concerns to God. Moses is the one who goes in between. He speaks on behalf of God and represents the people to the Lord. These are the covenant parties. God, Israel, and Moses. There's a particular significance to this covenant as we find it in the Old Testament. The present significance of uh, of the covenant parties in Exodus is this, that it is the Lord who determines how his people will be in relationship with him. God, the redeeming covenant maker, is the one who determines the boundaries of the relationship in which his uh, people interact with him. Friends, any God that we can create, any God that we can conceivably manipulate by our actions or by the things that we do, even by our prayers or by our words, he is no God at all. The Lord reveals himself in Scripture as the one true God of the universe who holds our existence in his hands. He is eternally good, he's eternally just, he's eternally loving, and it is he who controls all things. Because he is God and no other... He has the unique right to declare to his creation how they are to relate to him. The beautiful thing about God from Exodus here is that God wants to be known by his people as a loving deliverer. God wants his people to know him as the one who who loves them and has delivered them from from slavery. So there's a covenant significance that it's the Lord who determines how his people relate to him. But, but there's also a sort of covenant expectation. There's, there's a lingering longing for something more that comes out of this covenant and these covenant parties. Specifically, it is this. There, there begins to build at this time with Israel a, a longing for a time when God's people will speak to God face to face. Here in Exodus 19, God and his people are not speaking face to face. God rests atop the mountain at Sinai. He calls Moses to come up to him. In fact, God calls the people of Israel to come up, but out of fear, they don't. They stay around the base of the mountain, and they tell Moses, you go up, you represent us, and then come back down and tell us what God says. There is beginning at this moment, in Exodus 19, a a longing, a growing expectation and a longing for a day when God's people will see him face to face. When there's not fear to come before the Lord. When there's not fear to be in his presence. God intends here, right, that the people do come up to meet with him in Exodus. But they stay back. And so the lingering hope that comes from that A lingering hope that comes from God giving his law is for a day when God's people will not be far off from him, but will gladly draw near to see him, to be with him face to face. So having seen that covenant significance and the covenant expectation that go along with the covenant parties, we can look forward to the New Testament or maybe beginning with the New Testament and looking backward to Exodus, see Jesus as the mediator of a better covenant. Jesus himself is God in flesh. God is the redeeming covenant maker in Exodus 19. Jesus is God in flesh. He is one among us. As John says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That is, he tabernacled among us. There, John, drawing a a clear uh, allusion, uh, uh, illustration from Exodus and the tabernacle that is constructed there in Exodus to house God's presence. Jesus becomes a living tabernacle of God's presence, God with us. 
And as the perfect mediator of a new covenant, of a better covenant, God's true covenant people look to Jesus, not just as God with us, but also as God who is also fully man, who represents us perfectly to the Father. Just as the Israelites looked to Moses as their representative to God, Jesus, who is God clothed in humanity, is both God who speaks to us and the God-man who is one of us. In Christ, we see God face to face. That lingering longing to see God, to know him is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. So friends, this morning, if you really want to know, if you want to be in relationship with God, you must look to Jesus. You must look to Jesus. This is the beauty of Christmas, that the eternal son of God would clothe himself in the frailness of humanity to show us the father. Jesus is the perfect representation of God the Father. He is God with skin on. Jesus' birth in a manger in Bethlehem is God's ultimate and perfect move to be seen face to face by the people that he loves. Look to Jesus if you want to know the Father. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Here we begin to see the covenant terms. The covenant parties, God, Israel... Moses, Jesus fulfilling all of those things, being a perfect mediator for us. And now in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, we get the terms of the covenant, the, the, the way by which the boundaries of the relationship that God will have with his people. Here we read this, and this passage will be very familiar to you. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving to you, that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This passage, these verses that we know as the Ten Commandments, sum up the terms of the covenant that God is making with his people. He is going to be their God, and if they will obey his commands, he will make them his treasured possession, a holy nation, a nation of priests to represent the world, the peoples of the world, to God. This covenant that he makes, the terms of the covenant, show us that this is a covenant of holiness. Remember, Noah's covenant was covenant of preservation. Covenant with Abraham is covenant of blessing. This covenant with Israel is a covenant of holiness. From the first part, it reveals to us the Lord's holy nature. To see the Lord's holy nature, we need to look only to commandments one through four of the Ten Commandments there, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
These commandments show us that there is no one like God, that God is, the Lord is, wholly other than any God that we can suppose or imagine. There's no God that is greater than him. There's no God that is truer than him. He works on his own, and he is not persuaded nor cajoled by men to do anything other than what he deems is good and right. God is independent of us, and he deserves our worship. He is holy. He is perfect. He is set apart. The covenant of holiness reveals God's holy nature, but it also reveals the expected holiness of the Lord's covenant people. The expected holiness of the Lord's covenant people. To see that, we need only to look to commandments 5 through 10. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. All of these commandments relating to the interpersonal relationships that are going to take place within Israel, the people of Israel. If you read through Exodus 21 through 23, there uh, we have uh, Moses writing out what is called the case law. Uh, The case law is essentially the Ten Commandments applied to everyday living. It is the law, the Ten Commandments, in the case that such and such happens. So it's direct application of the Ten Commandments there. And it all has to do with how the people relate to one another and relate to God as his covenant people. God expects those that he calls to be in relationship with him to represent him well to the world. And that's the significance of this covenant of holiness, that God expects his covenant people to represent him well, to represent him rightly to the world. God gives to Israel a covenant that they will, here in Exodus, they will never be able to keep perfectly. They steal, they lie, they murder, they commit adultery. The Israelites covet. They take the Lord's name in vain and they profane the Sabbath. They make idols. The truth of the matter is, if they break just one of the terms of this covenant, if Israel breaks just one of these Ten Commandments, they've broken all of them. They've broken the whole contract of relationship. But for God to expect less than perfect holiness from his people would be a concession on his part to appear or at least to be content to appear less than holy to a world full of sin. See, if God requires less than perfect holiness of the people that he has saved and called to himself as they are his representatives in the world, that means he is content with being represented as less than holy in the world. But that's not true. So God requires perfect holiness of his people. This is where the laws for sacrifices and for, sin, for sacrifices for sins become so important. Out of God's own grace, knowing that Israel would not match his holiness, could not match his holiness because they are sinful, God makes even in the law, within the terms of the law, provision for them to have their covenant-breaking sins forgiven. This way, even though the people of Israel will sin and break the covenant that God has made with them, God's holiness is still clearly illustrated to the world. Even though Israel will sin and break the covenant, God makes a way within the law, within the covenant, for their sins to be forgiven as they sacrifice animals who die in their place for their sins. So when sinners who are sorry for their sin, for their wrongdoing, their rebellion against God, when they lean upon the grace of this holy God, he is good to hold them up from falling. And in so doing, he shows himself to be just. As sin is punished in the death of an animal in the place of the sinning Israelites, and also God being the one, the justifier of the one uh, who is humble and repenting from his sin as they receive God's grace. The covenant significance of of this covenant here in Exodus is that God expects his people, his covenant people, to represent him well in the world. 
And out of that comes another sort of expectation, a lingering longing for something more, for something, something uh, maybe more significant, something lasting. And out of that comes this. Out of this covenant of holiness comes a day when God's people will be made holy forever. Knowing that God is a holy God and, and wants his people to, to represent him as perfectly holy in the world. We have this expectation of a day, a longing for a day when God's people will be made holy forever. The law that God gives in Exodus, impossible as it is to keep so long as we are sinful, still shows God to be just and good. But it's also the law that plants in the hearts of those who hear it and who know it to be better than they know they are on their own. The law calls us to want something more than our sinful heart continually takes us to. Among God's people in the Old Testament, this desire to to be holy for more than a moment would lead to a desire to be free from sin and to be made holy forever. That's the expectation that comes out of this covenant of holiness, that, that longing that comes out of it. And so we move forward to the New Testament, or we can begin at the New Testament, look backward at Exodus, and we see Jesus, the one who fulfills the law perfectly. Jesus, the one who is perfectly holy, as God in flesh, fully God, fully man, fulfilling the law. He, as a full human, as being entirely human and yet entirely God, a son of Abraham, a member of the people of Israel, Jesus knows and keeps the law perfectly. If we turn to Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. There we read this. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That word law referring to what God gives to his people in Exodus there. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows the law, and he knows that the law represents God's perfect holiness, and that God's covenant people are to reflect the perfection, the holy perfection of God to a world well and rightly. So Jesus doesn't undo the law. He doesn't say, ah, the law is obsolete now. We're going to do something new. No, he says, no, the law shows righteousness. It shows perfect righteousness. And to be righteous, you've got to keep the law. But the implied problem there is, friends, we've never kept the law. We break it constantly. And so Jesus comes as God in flesh, God, the, the perfect God-man, to do what no human has ever done before, to fulfill the law, to, to be obedient to every aspect of the law, his entire life, never once rebelling against the Father. He knows the law. He keeps the law perfectly. He fulfills the law for us. But also... As the law of God reveals God's righteousness, his holiness, we see Jesus, who is the very righteousness of God, with skin on, who is a sacrifice for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, there the Apostle Paul reminds the church at Corinth that he, that Christ became sin, he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as God provided sacrifices for his people as provisions uh, in the law that they would inevitably break. 
So Jesus, who is God with skin on, lives a perfect life as a human being, doing what we could never do. He is the righteousness of God embodied and dies on the cross for our sins so that we might have his righteousness as we trust in him. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law perfectly. He is the one that that all of Israel has been hoping for, someone who would actually do this. Friends, know this this morning, that whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a Christian this morning, true holiness, being like God, righteousness, is not something that you do. It's not something that you succeed at with your own efforts. But holiness, true holiness, is something that is done for you, in your place, and in you by Jesus. Jesus, who is our perfect mediator, the better Moses, God in flesh, who was born at Christmas, did so so that as a grown man, having never broken God's law, he could die for our sins. He could pay the penalty that we deserve for our rebellion against God to bring us forgiveness, to present us to God as holy and blameless. Friend, you will never be holy. I promise you, between now and the time that you get home, From church this morning, you will display your own unholiness. I'm not planning on it, but knowing how people drive in Albuquerque, I'm sure that it will happen. Our unholiness, our inability to fulfill the law, to live as perfect, holy representatives of God in this world is always in front of us. The evidence of our sinful hearts is ever before us. So friends, don't think that you can achieve holiness on your own. Don't think you can be a perfect representative of God to the world. Don't think you can even be a good or decent representative of God in the world on your own. Because you can't. But Jesus, who is more than a good representative of God, he's God in flesh. Fulfills the law that God requires of his people. And dies for your sins to make you holy. Trust Jesus for your holiness. Trust Jesus for your relationship with God. Trust Jesus as he makes you to be a representative of God, of his grace, his justice, his holiness, his goodness in the world. We've seen the covenant parties. We've seen the covenant content. Let's now look at Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 13, 12 through 18, excuse me, as we see the covenant sign. You'll, you'll recall In Genesis 9, God gives the covenant sign, this reminder of the covenant of the rainbow to Noah. In Genesis 17, he gives the covenant sign of circumcision to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And now here in Exodus 31, God gives to his people another sign for this covenant of holiness. And that covenant sign is itself the Sabbath. Look at Exodus 31 verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That is, I make you holy. I set you apart. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. So that's pretty serious. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. 
It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in, the, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So here we have another sign that corresponds to the giving of this covenant, this covenant of holiness. And that sign is Sabbath, particularly Sabbath worship and rest. The sign of the Sabbath is intimately tied to God's creative work at the beginning of the cosmos. Right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And over the course of six days, he creates all the different aspects of the universe as we know it. And on the seventh day, God rests. So also he requires of his people to work six days and on the seventh to rest, to rest from their labor, to worship and to be refreshed. Sabbath worship serves as a sign to Israel that reminds them of who the Lord is. Worship on one day of the week where there's no concern for work, there's no concern for, for toiling and providing for the family. One day where you rest, you can spend that day in worship to remind yourself of who the Lord is. The Lord is not a slave driver like the Egyptians were, but he's a slave deliverer. He delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. He makes a way of deliverance from the slavery of sin for the people. God is the one, the Lord is the one who sanctifies, who sets apart Israel for his purposes. And that day of Sabbath worship is for remembering who he is and what he has done. This God is like no other. This God has done things that no other could do. This God has done things for Israel that no man could ever do for them. And he deserves their worship. And he requires them to set aside a day to remember who he is and what he has done. But Sabbath, so Sabbath worship is a sign that reminds Israel of who the Lord is. But Sabbath rest, spending a day during the, the week to rest is a sign that reminds Israel to trust the Lord's provision. In Exodus chapter 16, before we get to the law in Exodus 19, we have the first mention of the Sabbath. And there it's in regard to God providing manna, this uh, flower-like substance that would, uh, that would appear in the wilderness to provide sustenance for the people of Israel. God tells them there in Exodus 16 that they are to gather manna every day but on the Sabbath. Six days they are to gather, and on the seventh day they're not to gather any manna because God is going to provide double on the sixth day. So they'll have enough for the seventh day, not, not, to, not to gather. They are to rest on that seventh day. This day of Sabbath rest is a reminder that God provides perfectly for his people. And because God provides perfectly for his people, we can trust him enough to not work seven days a week. We can trust him enough during the previous six to take a day of rest to be refreshed, to be renewed, to be restored, knowing that he cares for us and provides for us, that we don't have to work our fingers to the bone to provide, that we can trust God for what is good and for what we need. This covenant sign has, is significant to Israel and significant into the Old Testament because it shows that God knows the limits of humanity their physical limits, their physical frailty, and he cares enough to command them to rest and to command Israel to worship. That's the significance of the sign. It's a day to remember who the Lord is, what he has done, and that he cares. But there's an expectation that, that comes out of that, another lingering longing for something more, for, for something more uh, substantial, something more uh, tangible to put their hands on. 
And that is a day where striving against God and striving for holiness will end. A day when Sabbath rest will be more than just one day of worship and rest, where Sabbath rest will be a spiritual reality within the heart of every Israelite, within the heart of every person who knows the Lord and walks with him. And that day in the Old Testament is not yet. But it is in the New Testament where we see Jesus who is our Sabbath rest. Jesus who is our Sabbath rest. Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, as he himself says in the Gospels, clarifies for uh, those that he is teaching and those that are questioning him in John chapter 7, verse 23, clarifying the purpose of the Sabbath. On that day, Jesus finds a a man who was uh, crippled and Jesus heals this man and causes him to be able to walk. On the Sabbath, where no work is supposed to be done. And the Pharisees and the scribes come to him, and they're jumping all over Jesus. And it's like, hey, man, don't you know that you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath? Don't you know that this is our day for rest? And Jesus looks at them and says, are you kidding me? You've, you've missed it entirely. The Sabbath day is not, a, is not a thing to be worshipped. It is a day on which to worship. The Sabbath day is to remind us, Israel, that God took us who were slaves in Egypt and made us free. He took we who had no rest and gave us a day of rest. This is a day to be refreshed, to be restored, to be renewed spiritually and mentally and, and physically. And so Healing a man on the Sabbath isn't opposed to a Sabbath regulations. It fulfills it. If the Sabbath is for anything, it's for making people whole, Jesus says. He clarifies the purpose of the Sabbath because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who created it. We have the, the, the clear purpose of this day of rest in Christ, but also he in his own life and in his death and in his resurrection, he provides for his people an eternal Sabbath rest. He provides for his people an eternal Sabbath rest. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. Here in Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews will remind his audience of the character Joshua, the one who follows Moses as leader of Israel, who brings the people to Canaan, to the promised land. And there in Hebrews 4, verse 8, we read this. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another uh, day later on. So here the author of Hebrews is saying, if Joshua had brought the people of Israel into Canaan, into the promised land to actually give them rest, there would be no expectation for rest later on. In fact, as the people enter the land of Canaan, they're not at rest there. They're constantly at war with their enemies and surrounding nations. They're constantly at strife with one another and constantly at strife with God because they're disobeying his law. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's a Sabbath yet to be fulfilled. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Friends, Jesus provides to us an eternal Sabbath rest. And here's what I mean by that. Every day of our lives, we spend striving against a holy God. We who are sinful, we who want to do things our own way are constantly fighting God constantly rebelling against him. And even though he desires for us to be holy, to be in relationship with him, there's still that relational strife. If the people of Israel had, had, had achieved real Sabbath when they'd gone into Canaan, they, they would not have continued striving with God through the rest of their history. So the author of Hebrews says, there's still a Sabbath rest yet to come. What's he talking about? 
He's talking about that day when, friend, you and I trust in Jesus, our perfect mediator, the sacrifice for our sins, the righteousness of God who takes away our sins so that we might be righteous. When we trust in him, we cease striving with God. There's no longer this fight. There's no longer this, this conflict. There's, there's no longer this uh, uh, tension between us and the God who has created us. Jesus has made peace between us and our creator He provides an eternal Sabbath rest so that we have spiritual peace now as we trust in him and eternal peace forever as we live in his presence in the resurrection. Church, this morning, my exhortation to you, my encouragement to you is this Christmas, cease striving and find rest in Jesus. Stop fighting with the expectations of this holiday season. Stop trying to keep up with the Joneses. Stop, not the Joneses that are in our church, the figurative Joneses. Stop trying to be better than your neighbor. Stop trying to prove yourself a better uh, worker than the, the person that's in the cubicle next to you. Stop trying to prove yourself to be the best mom on the block, the best uh, dad in the, in the office space. Stop trying to prove that, that you are the best anything, the best pastor, the best Sunday school teacher. Quit striving for stuff in this and just rest in Christ. Understand that that's why he came, Christian, to give you rest You have nothing to prove to God, nothing to prove to anybody else, only Christ to trust. You, friend, you who are not a believer this morning, you who don't know Jesus, you who are striving daily, either with maybe the guilt that you have for your own sin, you who are striving daily with some of the things we just mentioned a moment before, trying to be better, trying to be more, trying to be perfect. You're striving and fighting with yourself and with others every single day. Know this this morning, that because Christ was born, because the eternal Son of God took on flesh and was born in a manger, you can have peace with God and peace in this life. You can have rest from all of your trials. That's why in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when the angels sing and declare that Christ is born, this is their song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Friends, God is not pleased in your efforts. God is not pleased by your works. There's nothing you can do in your sinfulness to please him. What causes you to be pleased or pleasing to God is having faith in his son who he sent to redeem your broken, lost, sinful, enslaved to sin soul. No peace today by knowing Christ. Friend, if you don't know Jesus today, come know him today. No peace today by trusting in Jesus. No rest today by trusting in Jesus. Cease from your striving against uh, the, the burden of morality and being perfect by trusting in Jesus. Let him do that for you. Let him do that in you. Surrender your life to him so that he can do in your heart and in your life what he was sent to do. Let's pray.